everything in the world is broken. Everything. Everything in the world is broken. The entire world lies under a dark shadow. Like cancer, evil is spreading to and through everything and everyone it touches, meaning that everything it touches is wounded. Everything is hurt. Everything is broken. This is why the whole world and everyone in it and everyone you know and everyone who hears my voice right now is hurting to one degree or another. You're like, no, John, I feel great. This week has been awesome. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But don't fool yourselves. Take a drink of realism. There are wounds deep inside of you that you may be intentionally ignoring. Maybe you're not. But they're there. Because of sin committed against you and sins that you have committed. We are all broken people. The evidence of this worldwide brokenness is everywhere. We see it in the natural realm in things like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, floods, droughts, accidents, sicknesses, diseases, disability. We see this brokenness in the relational and societal realm. We see friendships that sour, marriages that fail, children are abused, people hurt people for no apparent reason. Churches split. Politicians lie. Business owners cheat their employees. Rich people are greedy. Poor people covet. All of us have a nagging discontentment, a feeling that if only our circumstances would change, then we would finally be happier. There's a brokenness in the relational and societal realm of our life There's a brokenness even closer to home in our personal lives, in our hearts. There's a deep and abiding brokenness. We see it in selfishness that plagues us. Why do we gravitate toward using people rather than serving people? There's sadness in our hearts. Why is it so hard to hang on to joy? Anybody with me on that? Why is joy like, oh, just come back. You know, you have it and you're like, oh, it's gone. You want it back. Why? Pride plagues our hearts. Why do we assume that we don't need God? Why do we assume that we don't need anyone else? Despair. Why is our anxiety so hard to shake? We have depression. We have loneliness. We have rage. We have confusion, lust, gossip, slander, malice, envy, gluttony. And the list could go on and on. I might encourage you to take 10 minutes this afternoon to sit in silence and practice the discipline of silence and solitude and just sit and turn everything off and sit and be quiet and look within yourself for a moment and notice how much pain and negative emotions you see there, how much regret, how much struggle, how much heartache, how much sin, how much brokenness you see, and then try to convince me that you're not a deeply broken and flawed person. I think 10 minutes with a pen and a journal could do a lot of us a lot of spiritual good. There's brokenness in our hearts. There's brokenness in society, in our relationships, in the natural realm. Then, of course, ultimately, this brokenness is in the spiritual realm. God's greatness and God's goodness is more or less ignored, minimized, or not believed. Jesus is seen as a good person rather than God. The Bible is mocked as ancient mythology or moral fable. 
There's spiritual, deep and abiding spiritual brokenness in this world, even amongst God's people. Who among us hasn't struggled to believe in God's greatness or to believe in God's goodness? We are deeply broken and flawed people. Of course, perhaps the the most obvious evidence of the brokenness of the world is humanity's great enemy that is coming for us all, namely death. We will die unless Jesus comes back first. We will all die. Everything in the world is broken. Everything, I literally mean everything, is broken. To put it another way, nothing is as good as it could be. Even your best thing or your best day or your best relationship has an asterisk by it. When you look down at the bottom of the page, it says broken. (laughs) Somewhere. Everything in the world is broken. In his book, Providence, John Piper summarizes this well. He says, quote, Nothing escapes the brokenness of the world. Things are painfully frustrating again and again. Just when you think you have one thing fixed, another breaks. When one relationship is healed, another breaks down. When one disease is under control, another strikes. When one accident is avoided, another comes from a different direction, end quote. The Apostle Paul puts language to this in Romans 8, 21. Paul says that the whole world is in, quote, bondage to corruption. Bondage to corruption is Paul's descriptor, uh, descriptor for this brokenness. The world, he's saying that the world is a slave to suffering. The world is in the prison of pain. Shackled to a shadow of darkness. And Paul goes on to say in verse 20 of Romans 8 that this isn't the creation's fault. That this isn't even Satan's fault. He says that the world is in bondage, quote, because of him, God, who subjected it. God is the one who subjected the world to evil. I'm going to say... That again, because this is probably something that you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, or you may not even have a category in your brain or your heart for this truth that is on almost every page of the Bible, that God is indeed sovereign over the condition of this world. God is the one who subjected the world to bondage, to corruption. More could be said on that. I will not preach that sermon today. Where I want to get us to, though, is that one of the reasons that he did that, that he has done that, one of the reasons God subjected the whole world to corruption is because in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, something tragic happened. When the first man and the first woman broke God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a cancerous corruption filled their hearts and started spreading through the world. What happens in Genesis 3 is why everything and everyone we know, ourselves included, is dysfunctional, hurting, and broken. What happens in Genesis 3 is why we pursue self-destructive behavior even though we know, we know what is right and what is wrong. But we pursue self-destructive behavior anyways. What happens in Genesis 3 is why it's hard to love God and easy to sin. When sin came into the world, it seeped into every pore of our hearts and has touched every point on earth. The world is broken because Adam and Eve sinned against God. That's what we're going to learn in Genesis 3. That's the main point for our study of Genesis 3 over the next four, five, maybe six or seven weeks. Adam and Eve sinned against God. 
and everything broke. Everything. The reason I've started this sermon on a more somber note is because as we begin studying Genesis 3, we need to approach this text with a sober mind, with a humble heart. We need to understand that there are reasons why everything are broken, and they're not necessarily outside of us, although they are. God subjected the world to corruption, to futility, Romans 8. But there are also things inside of us that perpetuate this brokenness. What I mean is that the, the world's first sin, in Genesis 3, the world's first sin is an anatomy of all sin. What Adam and Eve do here in Genesis 3 is what we do every day of our lives. So this chapter is meant to bring a sobriety into our hearts, a humility in understanding that we are not better. I think all of us at some point have thought, you know, if, if we were in the garden, we wouldn't have done that. That was just ridiculous. How could they have eaten the fruit? How could they have believed the talking serpent? We do it every day. We do it every day. Now this sobriety that I'm trying to lead us into isn't meant to lead us into despair. Sobriety, sober-mindedness, doesn't mean despair. Amazingly, there is hope. There are promises right in the middle of chapter 3. There are promises from God for His rebellious people. There's healing for wounded people. There's forgiveness for sinners. But the bad news of Genesis 3 prepares us for the good news of Jesus Christ. We won't understand the good as well as we should until we really come to terms with the bad and just how bad it is and how we got here. So Genesis 3 is where we're at for the next several weeks. Before we look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5 today, I'm going to try to set this text in its context. You might remember from several weeks ago, if you have your Bible open, chapter 2, verse 4, notice chapter 2, verse 4, says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I mentioned several weeks ago, anytime you see that phrase in Genesis, I think it's 11 times, these are the generations of, um, it's followed by an account of what happened to the world, or excuse me, of what happened from the starting point named. So here, 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's like Moses is saying, these are the generations of, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what happened to the heavens and the earth. I'm going to tell you what happened to the good world that God created. Chapters 1 and 2 says that God created a wonderful world out of chaos. And then chapters 3 and 4 talk about how God's wonderful world devolves again into chaos because of sin. Chapter 2, as I mentioned last week, expands on chapter 1. Chapter 2, Moses double-clicks on 126, enlarges it. Chapter 1 tells us that man was created. Chapter 2 tells us how man was created. Chapter 1 is like saying... There was a parade on the sixth day of creation. Chapter 2 is like saying, here's in what order the floats pass by in the parade. Point is, chapter 2 is massively important because it prepares us for what happens in chapter 3 and 4. So just follow me. Chapter 1, God creates the universe. Chapter 2, God creates man and woman. Chapter 3, sin comes into the world. Chapter 4, sin spreads. You see the flow? Creation of the world, creation of man and woman. Sin comes, sin spreads. So chapter 2 is the link between creation and corruption. Do you see that? That's why we spent, I forget, seven, eight weeks on chapter 2. Because it's massively important. Understanding chapter 2 is massively important for our understanding of what happens in chapter 3, the entrance of sin. In chapter 2, we saw that God created man out of the dust, put his breath in him. Put him, put him in an abundant garden to protect it and cultivate it. He made woman to help him rule God's world and take care of God's garden. He told them that they could do anything they wanted. This is amazing. I can't get over this. God said, you can do anything you want. Just don't eat from that one tree. One tree. <laughs> you can do anything. One tree is off limits. He 
He gave them a shame-free intimacy with himself and with each other. You might remember from last week, chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were spiritually naked before God. They didn't have anything to hide. They rested in the love of God without effort. God was first in their hearts and thoughts without any disciplined devotion. Think of it. They didn't have to try to love God. They just loved Him. They didn't have to try to will themselves out of bed in the morning to have a a quiet time to kind of fuel the fire of devotion to God. They just loved Him. They just loved Him because He was awesome. Loving Him and loving each other was as painless and natural as breathing. They just loved God and they loved each other. They were naked before God spiritually. They were naked before each other physically. Clothing never crossed their minds. So happy that clothing crossed your mind this morning. There was no inward pull of selfishness or shame in their hearts. Their life looked outward, not inward, toward God and each other, not toward self. So when we get to chapter 3, and for chapter 3 to make sense, the entrance of sin into the world, we need to understand that at the end of chapter 2, there was complete intimacy, total acceptance, total freedom between God and man, woman, man and woman. There was no barrier, no nagging shame, no guilt. Martin Luther says something to the effect, I'll butcher this quote, but he basically says 225 is in the Bible to show us just how much sin changed things. You know, he says, it would be madness for us to walk around naked nowadays. We don't, like that, we don't even think that way. Why? That's how much sin changed things. It broke the intimacy between God and man, man and woman. So to understand the horrors of sin... We have to understand the beauty of creation. This is why, as I've said, the gospel starts in Genesis 1 and 2, not 3. If you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, especially someone not familiar with the Bible, start with the beauty of God. Start with the beauty of creation. Start with the Imago Dei. Start with Genesis 1 and 2. And then in the context of his beauty and worth and our beauty and worth, then and only then will Genesis 3 and sin and rebellion and judgment make sense. So Genesis 3 is where we'll be. This cancer that's spread throughout the world and filled our hearts enters the world in Genesis 3. I'm going to read 3, 1 through 7. We're going to do 1 through 5 today, Lord willing, We'll do six through seven next week. We might do more next week. I don't know. We're going to at least do two verses next week. Praise the Lord. Okay. Three, one through five. Genesis three, one through five says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that, that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 1 through 5 is our text this morning. Moses sets the scene by introducing a new character in verse 1, this serpent who talks. The text says that it was, the serpent was more crafty 
than any other beast of the field. This is true of snakes in general. Snakes are guarded and cautious. They know where dangers lurk. They don't just slither about everywhere or anywhere. I hate snakes, by the way. Anyone else with me on that? I went to this deal at the boys' school a while back, and it was a snake handler, not in the Mark 16 sense, but uh, uh, he, was a, he was a snake guy. I don't know what to call him. And he was like, hey, everyone hates snakes, but hey, don't kill the snakes because they're really good for the ecosystem because they eat mice and all these rodents that carry disease. And I was like, man, never thought of that. But I still hate snakes. I just won't be so prone to kill them unnecessarily, I guess. So our hatred or dislike of snakes in general doesn't mean that they aren't good creatures. Snakes are good creatures like everything else God created. Now, we can talk about mosquitoes. We can talk about things like that. I don't know. You have to ask the Lord about that. But snakes are inherently good creatures like everything else God made. But they're naturally, instinctively shrewd creatures. Before sin came into the world, snakes or serpents weren't bad. This serpent was just a serpent. It, it being crafty in the text doesn't necessarily mean that it was evil. It's just how snakes are. All snakes are crafty. But this crafty snake became evil when Satan took control of it. When Satan took control of this serpent, it became a tool for evil. The Apostle John in Revelation clearly identifies the serpent in Genesis 3 with Satan. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He says that twice in Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 22. So John identifies Satan with the serpent. The point I'm making is that the serpent, that, that evil used a, cre- a creature, a naturally shrewd creature, to do his bidding. Satan is using this serpent to undermine the creator. Verse 1 notes that the serpent is in the same Category is everything else. I love that Moses added this at the end of the first part of verse 1. More crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent is in the same category as everything else that the Lord God had made. There's no dualism in the Bible. What do I mean by that? There's no, there's no battle between God and Satan as if they are an equal playing field. as if they have equal strength or equal status. That is a concept foreign to the Bible. The Bible clearly says there are two categories. There's creator, and God lives there. And there's creation, and that's everything else. So this serpent used by Satan is in what category? Creation like every other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's only one sovereign over God's world, and it's God. Snakes and Satan are underneath him, not beside him. We have lots of questions about this serpent. If you'd like to talk more, email Jared. What is this? Where did it come from? Why is it talking? Why is Eve listening? I'm not going to entertain those questions for the sake of time. There's much we don't know. There's much that the text doesn't say. There's one thing that is crystal clear, and that's where I'm going to drive into. There's one thing that's unmistakable about this text. There's one thing that we see, and that is that from the very beginning, this satanic serpent had a simple scheme, and that was to attack the word of God. That was his plan. To attack the word of God. Did God actually say were the first words out of his mouth? The serpent's method of attack wasn't random, but was carefully planned. His goal in this dialogue was simple, to attack and discredit the word of God. Did God actually say 
did God actually say? Satan opens with a surprised and incredulous tone. His attack on God's word is shrewd and subtle at first. He doesn't directly deny God's word. He doesn't say, God's word is false. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God is a liar. He says, did God actually say? Do you see the subtlety? He doesn't directly deny God's word, but what he does is smuggle in this idea that God's word can be subject to human judgment. And Eve had never heard or considered this thought before. She never thought she could judge God's word for herself. The word of God had been the source of everything she knew. And everything she knew was wonderful. But all of a sudden, someone tempted her, something tempted her to question the veracity and goodness of the word of God. The same word that created everything she enjoyed, the blue skies, the red birds, the brilliant sunshine, the white clouds, the lush trees, the extravagant food, her precious husband. She had no reason to doubt the word of God until Satan planted a seed of doubt in her heart. And now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was this alluring idea for her. Can God be trusted? And notice also that Satan is using the more generic name for God. He says, did God actually say Elohim? I've mentioned previously that throughout chapter 2, we saw God using, and Adam and Eve using the name Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, his personal name with the generic name, Yahweh Elohim. Satan doesn't do that. He just uses God. He refuses to use God's personal name, the Lord God, preferring a more remote and generic and impersonal name for God. Why? Because he wants Adam and Eve to believe in a God who is manipulative, secretive, and malevolent. He doesn't want them to remember the personal and intimate nature of God. He wants them to think of God as far off and distant and uncaring. Kind of a generic, abstract idea. He's hiding the truth about God in covert ways. This is a studied distortion of God's character. Did God actually say? All through chapter 2 and then chapter 3, you're going to see the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. Only when Satan speaks and when Eve answers does she and he change it to God. That's very instructive for us. Understanding who God actually is, who he's revealed himself to be, goes a long ways for us being able to handle the temptations of the evil one. His first line of attack is an assault on God's generosity. Did God actually say, then here's his question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Pop quiz. Is that what God said? No. God had actually said the opposite in chapter 2, verse 16. He told them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So God told them they could have anything he created except one tree. Satan's scheme was to undermine God's abundant goodness and generosity. Do you see what he did there? Did God actually say you, you can't eat from any of the trees? He's subtly denying everything Eve knew and had experienced. But the seed of doubt has been planted in her heart. She was now, for the first time, pondering new thoughts about God. Was God withholding good things? Was he stingy and strict? Was he a greedy miser who couldn't be trusted? I'll pause here to say that Satan's schemes haven't changed. Every day Satan is whispering in your, your ear and in the recesses of your heart trying to get you to not see and not believe in the goodness of God. In what ways is he doing it for you? Let me ask it this way. Like, How are you struggling to believe in the goodness of God? What areas are you struggling to see goodness what areas are you struggling to see the goodness and beauty and truth of God? Where's Satan whispering? Where's he talking? 
was a hard week this week. I was sharing with some with Susie out, and when Susie came home, I was rejoicing. And we were having dinner for her birthday, and uh, I just it just hit me right before we ate. We prayed, and I said, "Lord, despite a lot of stuff this week, you are so good." I look across the table and I see Susie. Goodness, I see a steak in front of me. Goodness. <laughs> Our beautiful children. Goodness. A church that is so wonderful and kind and good to us. Friends who are so, so good to us. A Christ who's never left us. There's just, it's like in the hardest, after a, a hard week, I'm just like goodness everywhere. There's just goodness everywhere. And I'm asking you, do you see it? I'm not minimizing our pain. Brothers and sisters, don't ignore or minimize your pain. That's pride. That's ridiculous. Don't don't be dishonest about things that are true. But as you work through pain, look around and, and look for goodness. Look for beauty. Look for God. Don't let the evil one convince you that God is not good. He's unfathomably good. And it shows up in Little places you might not even, like you're, you're going to walk outside later and there's going to be sun shining down upon you. Praise the Lord. There might be ice later this week. Praise the Lord for that too. Of course, the ultimate display of the goodness of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder whether God is good, look at a, look at a sinless Savior stretched out naked on a piece of wood with blood dripping out of every part of his body while people walked by shaming him and mocking him and insulting him and jeering him. He hung there quietly. He hung there like a man. He hung there and took it. He took the public insult insult and the divine wrath that was being poured out upon him. He drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath that we deserve on the cross. He's He drank it all. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us just how good God is. So we need to look at the cross. We need to keep looking at the cross to undermine Satan's lies. Now, in Eve's response to the serpent, instead of setting him straight, she does something really interesting. She revises God's word in three different ways. Instead of just boldly proclaiming the word of God, she revises the word of God in three ways. First, she leaves out the word every, verse 2, when she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She should have said, we may eat of every, the fruit of every tree in the garden, because that's what God had said in chapter 2, verse 16. Every tree was available except the one. So, her inexact wording, or her inexact quoting of God's word, was a shrinking of God's generosity. Perhaps unconsciously, she nodded in agreement with the serpent's claim that God was too strict. The cancerous cells of unbelief were starting to form in her heart. So, she leaves out the word every. Then, secondly, she adds to God's word when she says at the end of verse 3, Neither shall you touch it. God said, but God said, you shall eat of the fruit. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. That neither shall you touch it phrase was not in the original command. God didn't say that. Eve said that. God didn't say that. Satan's poison was starting to take effect. God never told them not to touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is magnifying God's strictness. She's basically saying that God is so harsh that even an inadvertent slip would, be su- would lead to sudden death. Or if you were walking under that tree and the fruit fell on your head, you just died immediately because it touched you. You see what she's doing? She's adding. She's adding severity. She's adding a strictness to God's word that wasn't there. And we do this all the time. We do this all the time. For example, I don't know if this example works. You can tell me afterwards. But let's say we're struggling to get to work on time. We've probably all been there. Amen? 
Great. A few of you have honest people in the house. We're struggling to get to work on time. Our boss pulls us aside. He says, hey, you really, need to get, you really need to get to work on time. You know, we start at 8, you need to be here at 8. That's when we start. And then you leave, and you're fuming, and you're mad, and you tell all your friends, man, my boss is so mean, it's like he's going to fire me if I'm late again. But that's not what he said. That's not what he said. In other words, here's how one pastor puts it. When we dislike a prohibition or warning, we magnify its strictness, with additions that make it sound unreasonable. When we don't like something, we magnify it to make the other person look bad and mean and unloving and uncaring. Do you see? So Eve is leaving out. She's adding. And then she's also softening the word of God. Thirdly, she softens the word of God by only saying, lest you die at the end of verse 3. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's softening it because God had said in 2.17, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. So Eve removed the certainty of God's judgment as originally stated in God's command. In one sentence, Eve revised God's word by subtraction, addition, and removal. The way Eve handled God's word changed the world forever. So when you think about how you should handle the word of God, it has consequences. When you think about how your elders handle the word of God, it has consequences. The way Eve handled the word of God changed everything forever. So may God make us the kind of people that take God's word so serious that we give ourselves to know it through careful and patient study. You're like, John, I'm not going to seminary. I don't want you to go to seminary. I just want you to know the Bible. Read it. Read it with other people. You don't have to be some theologian or some expert. You don't have to know every Bible trivia answer, but you need to know the word of God for the sake of your soul, for the good of our church. Reading our Bible is not about being religious. It's about fending off satanic attacks. Oh, how many Christians and churches have fallen away because they neglected the word of God. How many times have you heard it said, I think the Bible says, and then they just said something ridiculous. (laughs) Like, no, that's not in there. That's not in there. A classic example for a good Baptist is, you know, we're not supposed to drink. God says we're not supposed to drink. Well, it turns out that's not in the Bible. That's a conscience issue. Drunkenness is clearly prohibited. Drinking alcohol is not. The point is, you need to know this book. You need to study it carefully. You need to study it with other brothers and sisters. Find another church member to read the Bible with, to read a good book about the Bible with. It will do more spiritual good for your soul and for your church than you realize. It will defeat satanic attacks in ways you might not see. Eve's revisions of the Word of God changed everything. Her response to Satan's initial question emboldened Satan. To then, in verse 4... Make a patently false claim. Verse 4, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is a direct contradiction to what God said in 2.17. God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan is saying to Eve, God's a liar. He can't be trusted. He won't really judge you if you disobey him. You won't die. This is an in-your-face blasphemous statement. There's not a lot of subtlety with this one. You will not surely die. It's the exact opposite of what God had said in chapter 2. It's Satan trying to say that God isn't really that holy that sin really isn't that serious, and that judgment isn't real. Interestingly, the first doctrine to come under attack by Satan 
is the doctrine of divine judgment. He tells Eve that God won't do what he said he'll do if his word is disobeyed. Satan knows that if he can get Eve and you to believe that there's no judgment, then we'll live however we want. No judgment means that we don't have to live with reference to God. If there's no judgment, why do we need God anyways? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Sleep with whoever you want, watch whatever you want, say whatever you want, think whatever you want, do whatever you want on Sunday. Like if there's no God, no judgment, just believe whatever you want. Just have at it. But if there is a judgment, then everything changes. If there is a judgment, then we need to think carefully about how we live. If there is a judgment, then we have a deep and abiding need. If there is a judgment, then we, we, we need to understand that we are going to talk to God about our life. And we all know intuitively that we haven't lived up to God's standards, that we stand guilty before Him, that we can't save ourselves, that He's not going to wink at us and let us in. The reality of the judgment of God reveals our need for someone else to step in and argue our case, take our penalty, be our substitute, take our place. We need someone else to come in and say, this one's accounted for, this one's mine, this one's righteous. We know we don't have what it takes to survive God's judgment. The doctrine of God's judgment points us to the, rela- the reality and the beauty of God's Son. Do you see the connection? If you start disbelieving, let me say it this way. If you start minimizing or disbelieving in the doctrine of hell, Christ will be less and less precious to you. He'll be less and less precious to you. He'll be less and less precious. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The reality of a coming judgment changes everything. God will judge you after you die. If your sins aren't covered by the blood of Jesus through faith in Jesus, you will go to hell. If your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus through faith alone, this is the beauty, not through what you believe, or excuse me, how strongly you believe it, not through your awesome faith, not through your moral excellence, but through faith like a mustard seed, through faith in Christ alone, your sins will be forgiven, you'll go to heaven. Amen? Y'all believe that, right? That's what the Bible clearly says. There's not a third option. Belief in Christ exempts us from the judgment of God because Christ becomes our righteousness because we don't have any. Verse 5. After this bold-faced lie, Satan again leads Eve to question God's God's goodness, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like every good lie, this one is partly true. Their eyes will be opened and they will know good from evil. But again, Satan is subtly leading Eve to question the character of God. He's saying God is holding out on you. He's using the threat of death as a scare tactic because he wants to keep you in your place. He's really not good. He's repressive and jealous and doesn't want you to have too much or know too much or be too much. He's he's basically against you, not for you. And just think of this. Just think of where Eve is standing. This is an absurd assault on God's character in the middle of paradise, in the middle of a garden that screams of God's goodness. Eve is standing in the middle of a thousand good things that God created just for her. Not to mention that God had made her and her husband the rulers of the earth. But there Eve is, buying what Satan is selling, going along with Satan, doubting God's goodness. Satan's lie was so powerful because it carried the lure of divinity. Again, verse 5. You will be like God. Isn't that what our, our sinful hearts want so much? To be on the throne? You will be like God. You will be like God. 
the irony here is that she already was like God. Do you remember what God calls us? Genesis 1.26. His image bearers made after the likeness of him. We are like God. We literally show the world what God is like. Satan is offering her something she already had. And he doesn't have any new tricks. He's still trying to convince you that God is holding out on you, that his commands negate his goodness. That if, it's like a, like, it's so illogical. If a parent says that a child should or should not do something, then that, then to reason from that, that that therefore means that the parent doesn't love the child is illogical. It makes no sense that for a parent to say no to a child means that the parent doesn't love the child. It's ridiculous. This is what Satan is doing. He's trying to convince us that God's commands negate his goodness. That That if he structures reality in such a way, if he gives us commands to live by, then he's against us. Then he's against our joy rather than for it. He's subtly convincing us that God's word can be broken without consequence. This is one reason, by the way, brothers and sisters, we need to be praying against the evil one on a regular basis. As a church, as families, as individuals, do you pray against the attacks of the evil one? I mean regularly. It should just kind of be one of those things that is always there. Lord, please protect us from the evil one. Please protect us from his schemes, his lies, his attacks. He hates us. He hates what's happening in this room right now. He hates what's happening when you go home and you try to read your Bible. He, he hates what happens when you're trying to love your neighbor, and you're trying to love your roommate, even though they're unloving back. When you're trying to love your spouse. When you're trying to love your kids. He hates that. He's doing everything he can to convince you that God is against you. And, and God, is, God is not about your happiness, but God is about your misery. Oh, brothers and sisters, be praying against him. Be praying. Be praying. This 30-second conversation between Eve and Satan changed the world. In this 30-second conversation, Satan led Eve to to pit his word against God's. She could have corrected the serpent in five seconds. She could have run screaming to Adam for help. Adam could have stepped forward and done what God had put him to do there, uh, put him there to do in the first place. More on that next week. But none of this happened. Instead, Eve bought what the serpent was selling, and Adam let her buy it. She was entranced by the prospect that God was holding out on them. She was flushed with excitement over what would in just one more moment, consume her. What would eventually consume the whole world, what has consumed our hearts, namely this desire to follow the word of Satan over the word of God, to believe the lies of Satan rather than the truth of God, to doubt God's goodness and minimize his generosity and discount his judgment. This is the cancer that has consumed the world and our hearts. This fateful conversation in paradise is why the world has descended into chaos again. A shrewd Satan attacked God's good word and everything and everyone broke. And please don't tell me, well, things are getting better out in the world. No, they're not. This is a brokenness that our education, our religion, our work ethic, our government, our money cannot fix. This is a brokenness that can only be fixed by someone who lives outside of it, by someone who's never been touched by it. Who am I talking about? Who's never been touched by the brokenness of the world? King Jesus, of course. He's the only one who can come and fix and heal and redeem and forgive. That's why there's hope. The bondage to corruption that the world is under can be slowly and maybe imperceptibly undone here, and one day totally and completely undone by the risen King Jesus, the one who defeated Satan by obeying God. This second Adam, Jesus Christ, is ready to come in and start healing and saving and forgiving and redeeming you. 
any who've descended with Adam and Eve into the chaos of sin and unbelief. Christ stands ready to save. The good news of the gospel is that everyone who turns and puts their faith in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, turns away from their sin and towards Christ will be saved from the judgment of God. And, Paul tells us in Colossians 1, will be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This Christ is available for you today if you need him. Brothers and sisters, maybe you need to talk to him specifically about something, some lie you're believing, some sin you're struggling with. We're going to close our service in a moment with a moment of silence. Let that be a time for you to talk to God about what's on your heart right now, what you're feeling and thinking right now based on what we've heard from the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us to sift through what's been said and zero in on the thing, maybe just one thing, I don't know, maybe two, maybe ten, I don't know. Help us to see the thing that we need to take from here. We're all over the map, Lord. We're all over the map. Some of us are doing great. Some of us are not doing great. A lot of us are just somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Give us eyes to see the glory of the second Adam. The one who has and will crush the head of the serpent. Give us eyes to see satanic lies that we're believing. Give us a passion and a commitment to earnestly pray against his attacks. Protect us, dear God. Protect us from the the lying serpent, that ancient serpent. Fill us with the truth and goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ that we might stand firm, that we might be strong in the Lord stand firm in his might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.